I'm Tim Gompis, and this is Faith Improvised. It's a podcast where I can think out loud and talk with friends about things that interest me. Books, films, sports, music, culture, politics, the wonders and complexities of being Christian in this world, and my academic discipline, biblical studies. You're welcome to email me at faithimprovised at gmail.com. In this episode, I offer a handful of reflections and observations. I recommend a wonderful book on first century history, and I talk just a bit about the importance of listening to others. So this episode may sound slightly differently, and if it does, uh, the reason for that is I'm recording this in my kitchen. Sarah's out of the house for today, and uh, it's the most beautiful day outside, beautiful sunny day, and it's so bright. I just didn't feel like I really wanted to go uh, into the basement to record where I usually do. Anyway, if the sound quality is a little bit different, that explains why. If you haven't noticed anything, perhaps I shouldn't have said anything. Well, I wanted to start by offering just a handful of reflections on a variety of topics. First of all, just briefly, some somewhat mundane, uh, just to note that uh, I'm, I'm really digging the new Strokes album, um, The New Abnormal by The Strokes. Uh, Riley, my son Riley and I were texting about it recently, and he was saying that it's really grown on him. And I have to say, it's really grown on me too. I, on my morning walks, I uh, go through my couple of podcasts I listen to, and then when I run out, um, I put on some music. And recently, I've had The Strokes on. Really, their uh, the first two albums are some of my favorite albums. And uh, I've been listening to Built to Spill. And um, my brother-in-law, Michael, was just texting me uh, to check out Typhoon. I'm somewhat familiar with Typhoon, but I'm going to go back and um, make, I don't know, check out some of their, their music on coming mornings. Um, I mean, I still think in terms of albums. I mean, I, I, I guess I'm old enough. I come from an era, came of age in, in an era, the 80s, uh, you know, where you, you listen to albums. And an album was sort of put together uh, whole. And, um, you know, an album worked. Well, good albums anyway. And um, yeah, that was back in the day where, you know, putting together a music collection was was something that you had to work at. And it was something that you could be proud of and protective of. And, you know, you could share your music with other people and that sort of thing. But you had to do your research and I was talking with my my buddy Sean about this, my high school friend Sean, and we were just laughing about like the work that you had to go through to actually uh, find out about what new bands were coming up. If you if you listen to music beyond just like pop, you know, music or what was popular on the radio, but if you were into alternative music back in the eighties, like you had to do your research. Uh, like Rolling Stone had a um, uh, college charts. Yeah, in the back. So, like every two, did it come out bi bi monthly? I can't remember. I can't remember. Anyway, um, there was a high school station in my area, and they played great music uh, early in the morning and in the afternoons. And uh, anyway, I do not think of music in like this whole streaming thing. It's very different. It's such a departure. I still haven't totally gotten used to it. It, it just feels cheap. It feels like a ripoff. Like you don't have to. You're not. You're not having to do any kind of work. It's just not, you know, that's my old guy gripe about 
you know, these young punks that just can stream anything. Like, what's, come on, got to work for your music. So The Strokes' new album, the new Abnormal, aptly named uh, to capture this era, that's for sure. It's kind of what I've been listening to lately. Also, um, a bright spot, I have to say, this is just so refreshing. Uh, Sarah and I started watching Ted Lasso the other day and um, had had been recommended as like a real um, departure or a way of sort of coping with this current era and its darkness. I got to say, we just really loved it. It's um, sort of good hearted. It's also um, well put together. It's got some layers, some narrative complexity and um yeah really enjoyable i never uh peter you would love it i never really got into uh, english football uh when we lived in britain many years ago um but it sort of uh captures that culture as well and uh certainly illustrates well an american's confusion at uh, encountering a different an altogether different sport uh from sort of an American sports scene. Anyway, fun show. Ted Lasso. Highly recommend it. Last week, I mentioned that my new book is out um, on Paul as a pastor. It's called Power in Weakness. The transformation, or no, Power in Weakness, Paul's Transformed Vision for Ministry. And uh, it's a book for pastors, but it's really, it's a book for anybody, I think. And um, I, I may say more about it down the road, but for now... All I want to say is that if you're a pastor, send me an email, and um, I'm happy to send you a copy. Uh, I I got some extras, and um, you know I've got a handful. So you know, sort of first come first serve. When I'm out, I'm out. But I'm happy to. Uh, I want to make this available for pastors. I it would just mean the world to me if it was helpful uh, to pastors, and if they could. If it helped them discern various dynamics in their ministries and even gave them hope, that's that would mean the world to me. So if you're a pastor, email me. I'm happy to send you a book. So I also wanted to talk about something that has come up uh, in a number of conversations for me recently. And uh, that it's a conversation that's up and running in our larger culture. It's certainly on a lot of people's minds. And Applebaum whose book, uh, Decline of Democracy, I'm in the middle of right now, and I'm very much enjoying it. It's a very good book. She wrote a column in The Atlantic uh, several days ago, and she addressed this topic. And the topic is, you know, what do we do with people? She calls them the seditionists. That is, you know, not only the people who were at the Capitol, uh, you know, with an attempting a pooch, uh, on January sixth, not only those people, but um, you know people that support them or who are sympathetic, and she refers to those who are sympathetic with those insurrectionists, seditionists, and you know her question is, what do we do with these people? And um, th- this very thing has come up in a number of conversations that I've had with friends, um, and I am in this same boat. What do we do with people? who um, believe lies, um, passionately believe lies. They believe the lie that the, f- uh, the former president uh, told that he won the election by a landslide and that the election had been stolen. 
and that something uh, dramatic needs to be done in order to um, sort of take the government back and to remove uh, President Joe Biden because he's an illegitimate president. I mean, just, just you know, this whole reality, or what do you do about people who believe conspiracies about the pandemic and about the vaccine and and you know Bill Gates and George Soros and all the rest? What do you, what do we do with these people? And um, it's a it's a pressing question, and I've got the same one. I've got people that I love and that love me uh, who believe things that are false, and this can be sort of a a puzzling reality and a frustrating reality. And um, Anne Applebaum uh, addressed this in her her column in the Atlantic, and I thought it was brilliant. And um, I, I I have to say I completely think that she's onto something. I think she's right so far as she goes. But I think that thinking about this larger question as Christian people um, will we'll arrive at um, slightly different answers uh, and we'll, we will arrive at our own way of thinking about this question if we think perseveringly as Christian people. And here's some of the things that, that I've come to. Um, first of all, it's important that we regard other people. Well, I guess I would say it this way. It's important that when we are regarding other people, that we we have a very clear idea of who we are when we are regarding them. So I'm not, you know, uh, I don't have a, you know, an answer to the question, what do we do with these people? I've got to be very careful that I do not think of myself as a judge or as somebody who can dismiss somebody else or who can think in a condescending way about somebody else. I can, I can think about them. They are deluded. But I can also think about other people. They are people um, that I am, a, I am called to love. And they are people that I get to love. Like my life, you know, God is so good to me that I actually have them in my life. So I've got to, re- I've got to always be maintaining my place and posture and self-regard as someone loved by God and someone who is always receiving gifts from God in the form of other people. I can never regard myself as sort of a God-appointed judge of other people. That's just that's um that's a degraded way of thinking about myself, even if I think that I have some kind of status to pass judgment on somebody else. And uh, that's a way that I have to I have to hold on to my humanity um, because I will become something less than human. I will I will dehumanize myself if I think in condescending ways toward other people or in dismissive ways toward other people. So I've always got to be holding on to my humanity. And uh, that keeps me in a place where I'm always honoring and loving other people, thinking the best about them, and uh, thinking in ways where I get to have them in my life. So to that question, what do we do with these people? Um, that I, w- I want to actually go at that question because that that question sort of presumes if we lift up the skin, you know, lift up the hood and get under the skin of that question, the question presumes, well, these people are obvious idiots and we have 
you know, it, it's our place to somehow do something with them. You know, what do we do with these people? Um, I don't want to be dismissive of other people. And I don't want to think that I have something that I can do. I mean, who am I? I don't, I'm not, I don't have the authority to do things with people, you know, um, like a button, you know, eject them, you know, or whatever, dismiss them. No, people are gifts to me. I get to have them in my life. Just like um, I was listening to the Mary J. Blige version um, where she sings with Bono. Um, their great song, U2's great song, One. And it's sometimes misunderstood. Uh, what is said in that song, what is said is not, we've got to carry each other, but we get to carry each other. We get to carry each other. That's the gift that we have. And we've got to hold on to that reality and hold on to each other um, because the other is the agent of blessing and wonder and goodness in our lives. And we've got to, got to make sure we see things that way. So um, that's the first thing that I would say about uh, to that question. We've got to hold on to our humanity and not think that we have the right or the place or the status or the authority to dismiss people or to think less of them. It's been helpful for me to not think that people choose to think in bad ways or they choose to think uh, they choose to have conspiracy uh, thinking, um, you know, frames of mind. Um, what I have been intensely critical of is the culture that forms these kinds of people, that, fo that forms wonderful, otherwise wonderful people to think in um, really foolish ways, uh, which has happened. And this is why I have I have so many critical comments, like really devastatingly critical comments, um, about evangelicalism and evangelical culture, because evangelical culture is a culture, that is, it's a it's a way of being that has been purposefully cultivated, it's been worked on, it's been created. Uh, it it doesn't it doesn't. The lie I used to believe, without really knowing it, was that God somehow at one point in whenever it was in the post-war era, God just picked up the Bible and shook it and out popped evangelicals. Like we just, we can, we come from the Bible. We don't come from history or from a tradition, but that's completely wrong. We've been shaped. We've been oriented. We were created. This is why it's so important to read as much as possible and to learn as much as possible about evangelical history and about that process of creation. And it was purposefully created um, in many ways, by conspiracy theory thinking, um, early evangelical leaders basically built followings and built constituencies, which made them a lot of money and made them very powerful figures. They built these on conspiracy theory thinking back in the teens, 20s, 30s, and 40s and beyond. And that has not abated one bit. And so in many ways, evangelical people have been um, uh, cultivated and um, sort of worked on as a people with habits of mind and habits of thought over the last 100 years or more uh, to basically become conspiracy theory thinkers. So when the latest one comes along, of course they believe it. This is what we've been trained to do unless you work purposefully against the grain 
of the movement and the culture. Um, so I think we have to aim higher, not at people at individuals, but be very critical about the structures um, that create these, um, I don't know, diluted ways of thinking or self-destructive ways of thinking. They're, and largely, they're just unfruitful. They're unproductive. They don't lead anywhere, um, which is kind of frustrating and sad. And um, yeah, they're, and these ways of thinking are based on uh, fear. They're based on um, anger. And, and, uh, and Applebaum talks about how it is that uh, for many people, there's a preferred way of engaging reality where people prefer simplicity and simple explanations and clarity. And not everybody has the time uh, you know, to sort of do loads of research and dig into things. Uh, most people prefer simplicity. And when they actually encounter complexity, Applebaum says they get angry, they get impatient with complexity. And that, that stirs up anger. And that anger uh, can go to work and produce a lot of bad stuff. And it can even become violent. And, you know, our culture over the last, um, well, American culture for a long time has had that kind of uh, anger produce violence. We, many of us have forgotten about that certainly in white middle-class culture and in the stories that we tell ourselves as a nation, we have forgotten about so much of this, but, um, you know, digging beneath the surface of our history, it's there. We were founded in violence. Um, white Europeans came here violently and drove first nations people, um, off their land violently and then enslaved African people and brought them here violently and maintained slavery through violence. Uh, we, quote-unquote, won independence through violence. Our violence turned inward where we fought each other. We had a civil war on this land. And uh, the violence has really continued uh, through the last, you know, ever since 1900. There, it's been a long, uh, really unending story of violence, even though, you know, life has improved in many ways. Uh, for many of us, life is comfortable, and for many of us, uh, we've been brought to a place of, we've been lulled into a sense of complacency and kind of thought that we've escaped from history to some extent, uh, but the last 20 years have reminded us that that's not possible, um, and a lot of our chickens are coming home to roost. So anyway, it's not the people that we've got to be sort of targeting to understand all of this, but the systems of thought, the larger structures and powerful figures, certainly, uh, quote unquote, evangelical leaders, national figures, people who have interests in maintaining illusions and in sowing um, conspiracy theory thinking. Those are the people and those are the dynamics I think we ought to go after as we fight like crazy to just really maintain postures of love for one another, uh, the people that we encounter face to face that we genuinely honor and love each other because, you know, life is so good that we get to have these others in our lives. That's how we, that's how we have to see it. That's how we get to see it. Um, and here's the thing that I found most compelling about what Applebaum had to say, and I completely agree with this. She 
uh, talked about, um, I heard her on a podcast on uh, The New Abnormal, not the Strokes album, but another podcast that I occasionally listen to. She was interviewed and Applebaum said that it's not the best thing to sort of go back to Nazi Germany and afterward to know what to do. Um, there's a lot of other situations that might be helpful historical parallels to understand our present moment, but those are not the best ones. And what Applebaum said was um, a great parallel is thinking about Northern Ireland uh, and their steps toward peace over the last 20, 25 years. And what she had to say was in dealing, in, in, in relating with people who are captive to conspiracy theory thinking and who are um, you know, seditionists who support um, the overthrow of, of the United States government, even though even if they didn't show up in Washington, they support it. Applebaum said that in relating with them, she said, the, it's not a battle of ideas. And it cannot be dealt with. It cannot be addressed at the you know the level, at, at like an intellectual level. It's not ideological. Um, you can't have argument. Just like um, Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland would never be convinced of the other's position ever. It's just not going to happen. And she said, what was so productive in the peace efforts there was when. Um, the, the actual issue was ignored and people were invited into projects that they did together, projects that were productive for communities, peacemaking projects, or just, you know, repairing schools or whatever it was that was community benefit, you know, community beneficial. They focused on bringing people together to do actual projects to produce something instead of bringing people together to either get them, you know, into debates and arguments or to sort of um, have some kind of re-education program. And when people, um, because Applebaum says that the problem is not at the intellectual level, it's at the relational level. It's at the emotional level. So conspiracy theory thinking um, gives people a sense of belonging. It gives people uh, a sense of satisfaction. It gives it, re it restores that sense of simplicity. Um, and doesn't force people uh, to come to grips with complexity. The issues are simple. Democrats are evil. They stole the election. Instead of having um, the whole issue be a whole lot more complex, Democrats are human beings. They're fine people. They may think very differently than me. And now I have to go to work to sort of deal with the complexity of how can this person love their neighbors, be a fine person, be a fine upstanding citizen, but have different ideas about national politics than I do. That makes life more complex. Um, so, I mean, conspiracy theory thinking works at a bunch of different levels other than intellectual. So it's not it, addressing it intellectually or at the idea level, the concepts, is completely counterproductive. The way that it works is just very different. And so I was thinking about... How it is, again, I've thought about this so much recently, um, how it is that the church of Jesus Christ on the pages of the New Testament, according to its, the designs and the vision of the kingdom of, of kingdom of God communities in the New Testament, the church is again the answer here because the church 
is a community of welcome and of hospitality, not where we get into debates about ideas. That's not the point of the church. We don't even advance an agenda. We don't get a message out there. I mean, these are all sort of modern ways of, of thinking about the character of the church. The church is a community of hospitality. The church is a community of service and of goodness and of celebration of our humanity and celebration of the kingship of God and his work of redemption to restore to ourselves our humanity in Christ. So to be the church is to be is to be community that gathers in that uh, you know for that purpose um, to celebrate that reality and to perform that reality. So we gather for a meal that we linger over. We hear one another's stories. Uh, we listen to others. We grieve with those who grieve. We rejoice with those who rejoice, and we consider how we can do good to one another and then do good in the communities beyond the borders of our small communities. That's what the church is all about. Um, yeah, there are so many diagnoses of modern ills, and I've been thinking about this. Really, it was since Pankaj, I read Pankaj Mishra's book uh, a year and a half ago with my friend Andrew and, and then reread it last year because uh, it is so brilliant, his book, Age of Anger. And um, also, I'll mention uh, Sarah Kenzier and uh, I think it's Andrea Chalupa's podcast, Gaslit Nation, where um, just brilliant uh, journalist and then also a scholar. Um, Sarah Kenzier is an anthropologist, and she studies the rise of authoritarian states, and especially um, in the East or um, you know, Russia and uh, the former Soviet Union. And Andrea Chalupa is a journalist um, studying much of the same, um, you know, Russia's history and the Soviet Union's history of the last uh, hundred years or so. Um, when they diagnose the problems, they're very clear-headed, uh, and it's—I just have found it so interesting that, as far as solutions go, they have a lot. Of things to say about uh, local community action, local advocacy, fostering local relationships, holding on to our humanity, and not giving into, um, you know, the previous president's autocratic designs of sowing within the culture confusion and turning people against each other. Um, those are autocratic tactics, and with our culture that is at each other's throats. It's working. And anyway, listening to uh, some of the things that they've had to say and reading some of Sarah Kenzier's material, again, I have thought the church is the answer because we are a local community. We are local communities that gather and that you know consider where is there in our area, in our uh, town, our area, our city, where is there suffering? Where are the people without a voice? Where are there people who need advocates? Because that's us. We, um, you know, the identity of Christians is people who co-suffer so that we may be co-glorified in the future, according to Paul in Romans 8, anyway. Um, and so if our call is to co-suffer, where's their suffering and where can we enter into that? Um, 
where is the spirit already present where creation is groaning and where the spirit is also there groaning so that we can enter those spaces and inhabit those spaces um, not so that we can be you know the great white hope or the great answer solve everybody's problems but so that we can have fellowship with the sufferings of Christ so that we can actually encounter for ourselves God's life-giving presence, uh, which is not found in the halls of power, not found in the halls of power, not found with the prestigious. Um, God's presence is found where creation is suffering, uh, at least according to the Gospel of Mark and uh, the other Gospel writers and much of Scripture. So, unfortunately, the tradition in which I was raised has missed out um, in seeing that picture. We often f- give into the very illusions that the New Testament is trying to address, that God is not found with the powerful and prestigious. He's found uh, with the outcasts. By the way, um, another brilliant song along this line that gets at that is, uh, it's not a, a, U2 has a song called Jesus Christ. It is so great. I'm going to play it when I'm done recording and just blast it in the kitchen. Like I said, I'm home alone today. so. Um, but it's it's not a song. You'll, you'll, you, if you want to listen to you have to look around for it. It's not a song that you can find anywhere. You two never released it, but it is brilliant. Love it. Gets at this theme so well. And Peter, you know what I'm talking about. Um, so re- returning to my point, I had a huge sandwich for lunch today. So my... My brain is feeling mushy. Returning to my point, uh, which is the church is the answer. We, we, if we, if we discover, rediscover our identity, this is who we are. We are sort of, we are the church is God's solution to so many of these problems. We are a local community that encounters one another um, with postures of love, with intentions to celebrate and to lament, and to mourn, to grieve, to comfort, and to strategize and plot for good, for blessing, for life. Um, that's who we are. So to that original question, you know, what do, we, what do we do with these people? We, first of all, hold on to our humanity. Um, we think critically. We hold on to love. We understand that it's a complex world. And... Uh, avoid the topic. Don't don't talk about it. Talk about all kinds of other stuff. Invite people into projects uh, where there's concrete, particular good being done, which the church ought to be about. And uh, don't give in to the illusion that you can somehow argue somebody out of um, a conspiracy theory or a delusion about a stolen election. The answer, as ever is love, which again, U2's most recent album, um, I can't believe, I can't remember if it's the first song or the last song, uh, but Bono just repeats that line. Um, In the end, love is all we have left. And that is the truth. And that's not a statement of resignation. Um, It's a statement of defiance and it's a statement of good news because truly and really, Um, love is all that we need.
want to tell you about a book. It's by Bruce Longnecker, and the book's title is The Lost Letters of Pergamum, A Story from the New Testament World. It's published by Baker Academic. Now, it's been out for some time. It was first published in 2002, but I wanted to talk about it because I've gone back to it repeatedly in conversations that I've had with people in thinking through how to think through being the church in this era, Uh, because we've got to start from somewhere. And I think that this book's portrayal of the character of the church and its brilliant uh, conception of the church, uh, you know, being uh, informed by a rich uh, understanding of the New Testament theological vision for the church and its its practical way of sort of um, embodying being the gospel. I think the book is so helpful that, and, and it can spark our imaginations to think about the kinds of ways we can actually uh, foster community life as the people of God in this current age. The Lost Letters of Pergamum is a work of fiction. And um, Bruce is writing from uh, a rich understanding of the New Testament, of New Testament theology, but also of Greco-Roman history and culture and social dynamics. Uh, Bruce is not only um, a world-class scholar of the New Testament documents, but also of the material culture that is, you know, archaeological remains uh, from the Greco-Roman world, having um, written in his most recent book, In Stone and Story, of what we can learn uh, from the material remains in Pompeii and Herculaneum uh, about the Greco-Roman world and how we can understand the New Testament in its light. Well, The Lost Letters of Pergamum, as I said, is a work of fiction uh, where Bruce imagined um, a series of letters going back and forth between a nobleman, Antipas, uh, and Luke, the gospel writer. So Bruce was talking about how it is that Antipas, this character who's mentioned as a martyr in the book of Revelation, um, obviously must have had just a really fascinating story um, about how he became Christian because he bears the name of um, a a Roman governor. So how would he ever have become a follower of the way when uh, the Christian way in the first century Greco-Roman world was regarded as subversive and as a threat to the established Roman order. So Bruce said that, you know, the story basically just wrote itself. Uh, Well, after a brief introduction, the story is actually presented and written from a fictionalized archaeologist who, quote unquote, found this cache of letters uh, somewhere in Turkey and then just presents the letters and the order in which they're written. And it is just brilliant. It's sort of, uh, it's, a, it's a work of historical fiction, but you really get to know uh, Luke. You really get to know Antipas and how he encounters this strange movement, um, you know, called, it wasn't called Christianity, but um, the strange movement of Jesus followers. Um, and then, Antipas also encounters several social embodiments of uh, the faith. Uh, He encounters one house church that is sort of being faithful and doing it the way, you know, it ought to be done, we might say. Um, And that's very strange. And there's a bunch of uh, strange social practices that Antipas encounters, especially with people from different social classes and ethnicities sitting around a table having a meal um, that demonstrates and declares their social solidarity, which runs completely counter to everything that Antipas 
has been trained to think about and everything he knows about. Um, Antipas also encounters another community, uh, another house church, which has in some ways accommodated to um, the Roman social order, which I just think, uh, well, I've, I've had these discussions over the last 15 years or so as I've used the book in classes. Um, that dynamic, the comparison of those churches has led to just so many discussions about the ways in which uh, we might pursue faithfulness in our churches today and the ways that we've accommodated to the larger social order. Just to say, this book is absolutely brilliant in so many ways. Um, Bruce uh, does a great job of, as he goes through in, in an appendix, he points to the things that he uh, makes mention of as the story unfolds that are historical and um, some that are fictional. So you have a good guide to uh, you know the sweep of, of history in the Greco-Roman world in the first century, but also a fictionalized window into sort of the inner logic of the New Testament uh, faith as it's unfolded. And I, I don't want to say the New Testament faith because it's embodied the way of Jesus and the way it is practiced. You get a great window into that. And um, when I formerly was using this book with evangelical undergrads, there were always students who bristled at the notion that this is fiction, um, which, of course, that always led to great discussions of, yeah, it's actually fiction. Like fiction works in a different way than sort of, you know, typical history and, and you know, facticity works. Fiction actually works in a deeper way and enriches and shapes our imaginations. So it's absolutely critical. And with this well-informed work of fiction by a world-class New Testament scholar, um, I know truly of no better way to get into the world of the New Testament than in um, enjoying this book. Anybody could enjoy this book. Lay people. I've used this book in uh, church groups. Um, I've used it not only at school, but um, in working through uh, working through it with small groups, and it, we've always had an absolute blast. Anybody would enjoy it. Brilliant piece of work. Bruce Longnecker, uh, The Lost Letters of Pergamum, a story from the New Testament world, and it's published by Baker Academic. Get it from an independent bookstore. So I said at the opening of this episode that I want to uh, talk a little bit about the importance of listening to others. And I think that that's what I want to talk about. Um, I want to just try to pull together a handful of thoughts uh, over, that I've had over the last several days. Um, I've been thinking about this reality for a long time now. That is that we've got to be in conversation with each other. And just the strategic importance for, for someone like me uh, a white middle-class male in America, the importance for me to be listening to people who are other than me. And that is not to say that I am standard and that I'm at the center and that everybody else is other in relation to me. That is the story that um, the larger sweep of American history tells. But I've come to see that that's a corrupt story 
and um, it's a story that flows out of the present evil age and its corruptions, and it's an illusion, and it's an illusion that does a lot of damage, profound damage, to people that that story others, and it does profound damage to me because it it sets me in a place that, um, it in one sense it elevates white men. Um, but in so doing, it also dehumanizes white men and makes them into something other than um, the, something other than human, at least according to how uh, Scripture discusses what it is to be human and how Scripture portrays what it is to be human. So I've been thinking for uh, quite a while about the importance of listening to others, and I've been practicing that. Uh, I've mentioned before I try to read uh, books. Uh, works of theology and history and social analysis um, by black women and um, people who are uh, Latino, um, people who are just who see and inhabit culture from uh, social locations other than how I do. And I've just learned loads of, I've just learned loads and I'm, I'm so grateful. Um, my overall justification for this or the, you know the reason why I'm uh, pursuing listening to others and actively learning from others, not merely being willing to listen or to tolerate or give place to, but actively learning. The reason for that is I want to inhabit faithfully the kingdom of God, which has a dynamic of right making. It has a justice dynamic. And in that justice dynamic, uh, the first are last, and the last are first. And that's not a static reality. That's a dynamic reality where everybody is being resituated and replaced, relocated socially. And um, in, or in order to inhabit that dynamic, well, I want to have my eyes open to where I'm being moved to and where, where I'm being moved from, where culture has located me and how kingdom dynamics uh, intend to move me around. I want to be awake to that. I don't want to just end up with you know, cosmic whiplash and, you know, a sore neck by being, you know, jerked around from this place and that place. I want my eyes open. I want to see it all coming and I want to see it all happening. And because uh, the justice making dynamics of the kingdom of God are liberating and for my good and, and, they're, and they're life-giving, they're not a bummer. Um, I don't want to merely allow these things to happen, but I want to be involved in them, I want to be actively moving around and um, inviting others to um, be a source of of life for me, and I want to op be open to how I might be a source of life for others. So that's my larger pursuit. I want to inhabit the kingdom of God reality well and skillfully and faithfully and effectively, and uh, that's for my good. And I and I want to always be having my um the reality of my uh christian confession i want that to be made clear to me increasingly i want that to be ever more clear to me or ever clearer to me by the way side note this has bothered me and it bothers me every time i do it when there is a form of a word that um allows uh for like a superlative form like uh, something that is clear can be clearer. Uh, something that's pure can be purer or whatever. It bothers me when I hear 
people use uh, just more and then fail to, to recognize that there's an available form of a word that is appropriate, like clearer. And I just did it. I prefer to use a term like clearer and instead of saying more clear. It just strikes me as so profoundly unartful. There are a lot of things about which I'm just really, really fussy, and that's one of them. Anyway, as I said, that's a side note. But I want my Christian identity, my identity as a professing Christian, I want that to be clearer to me, and I want to understand what that's all about. And so part of that involves not only positively learning about how the New Testament construes the identity of disciples. That's part of the project. That's the positive side of the project. But it involves a negative side, and that is understanding how it is that culture uh, in its corruptions has has shaped my identity, how, understanding how it tells me who I am. So I want to be attentive to that, and to be attentive to that, um, I have to listen to others. I have to be in conversation with people who are disabled, so I know um, how I am an able-bodied person. Uh, I need to be in conversation with people of color so that I understand what it is to be a white person. I need to be in conversation with people who are black and um, black women, the marginalized of the marginalized, and people who are uh, Latino. Um, I need to be in conversation because they will have their eyes open uh, to the realities that we all inhabit together in ways that I'm not. And I want my eyes opened increasingly. So anyway, that's just to say... I've been thinking about this and talking about it uh, for some time. Um, and I've come to see that uh, the way that I talk about uh, matters like cruciformity, which I talked about some weeks ago and how that works, and um, my book, Power and Weakness, that I always keep forgetting the subtitle to, but my, my book, Power and Weakness, um, and how I discuss cruciformity as it relates to pastoral ministry um, really comes at this whole issue from, to a, to a large extent, from a, a privileged position, a position that is centered. And um, when I was talking about cruciformity some weeks ago, uh, I think, I don't recall exactly, but I think I may have mentioned that it's, we've got to be very careful um, to be in conversation about this from the varieties of cultural locations that we inhabit um, so that cruciformity does not become an oppressive reality because it has been used in that way in the past because white men have controlled uh, theological discourse over the centuries. The subjugation of indigenous peoples really around the globe in the colonial era uh, was endorsed by Christian theology and by corruptions of um, notions like becoming a servant and uh, and that sort of thing. So Christian scripture has been used in the past extensively to endorse the subjugation of people, um, and that's a horrible reality. So I, I want to reckon with that. Anyway, this is a very long introduction to what I wanted to be talking about. Um, the other day I received uh, a long, um, brilliant, passionate email uh, from Marin, from a friend of mine who is a disabled person. And um, I'm still, I need to read back through it again and digest it. Um, 
because it was it had a lot of really rich things to say about that. And um, Merritt, I want to get back to you. Uh, this might be a preliminary response, <clears throat> but I want to take very seriously what you had to say because I thought you 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 uh, struck upon something really strategic, and it reminded me um, of a number of things. And just in light of you know, this has been dominating my my thinking over the last couple of days, so I, I wanted to kind of pull it together here. But just in light of her email, which I may talk about in a second here. Um, it reminded me of the importance of listening, of actively, perseveringly listening to one another and truly um, hearing and engaging in, in, in a rich, sustained conversation so that we really truly understand each other. And I'm so glad um, that she wrote because I want, to tr- I want to inhabit and enter into what she had written and um, let, let it go to work on my imagination to push back and expand the borders of my imagination so that I understand um, the notion of cruciformity more faithfully and so that I can sort of have the you know the wonderful experience of learning and of identifying with the experience of another person. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I appreciate the conversation. And I also was struck by how it is that, um, as I sort of mentioned before, how the church is supposed to be a body of diverse voices. It's a big, huge, joyful conversation over a big meal. That's the church. It's a fellowship. It's an actual embodied concrete community uh, centered not around like a celebrity preacher or even one main person, but it's around a table. It's, It's Jesus's table where each person is an other. And there's a, there's only one insider, and that's Jesus. And Jesus welcomes all of us and embraces all of us. He gladly welcomes us. Um, the church is the hospitality of God toward us all. We are all welcome. We were all far from God. God has brought us near in Christ. Um, we all were the other because of human rebellion, and God has come to us. He became the other, and now he welcomes the other. And because we're all finding ourselves joined at Jesus's table, uh, we're all sort of shoulder to shoulder uh, prepared for a wonderful time of fellowship and a meal. Um but that situation means that we all have to listen and talk and share and uh, engage the joint task of discerning how it is that forces uh, are at work among us and on us uh, to situate us in ways that white people in America, but really and around the world, have become the insiders and other people are othered. We have to have that conversation because the situation where Jesus is the insider and welcomes all of us has been reconfigured so that whiteness, or, you know, whiteness has reconfigured the situation so that white people are the insider and others have been othered and are welcome to sort of um, come to whiteness's table, but they will always have to be sort of configured by whiteness. 
and you know men have been centered as the insider and women and and uh, all other sorts of gender identities are the other and you know they're welcomed to uh, the male table but they will always sort of have their identity in relation to and you know um, able bodiedness or as Marin uh, introduced me to the term enabled that may be her term I told her she's got to write a book she's a brilliant writer um, but the you know the enabled are the insider and everybody else is welcomed to the enabled's table and has their they all have their identity in relation to that reality so that this is just to say the ongoing conversation on the part of the church and the ongoing project of learning and discerning is so crucial so that we see how um, the reality of the church has been distorted and it's not like we we've got to embark on this hard project you know we really should do this it's worth doing because we're all we're all suffocating because of this reality because Jesus is not centered as the only insider and all of us are welcomed to him because that reality has been distorted um it has resulted in death for us all we're all tasting death we're all experiencing death we're all being dehumanized we're all being minimized we are being distorted and if we can work towards re-situating the situation as it is presented to us in the New Testament, that's for our good. It's for our life. So that this conversation is a crucial one because our blessing, our celebration, our goodness are all at stake. And um, if you are just a human, you want all that. You want to live. You want to stand up straight and take, you know, fill your lungs with the pure air of the kingdom of God and its its brightness and its lightness. So it's a project worth engaging. And uh, Marin's email also reminded me that, um, and you know, one of her perhaps her main point that she was getting at was um, kind of expressing frustration or concern or raising the question anyway <clears throat> of how it is that cruciformity is both sort of like the path of life, but also a place of intense frustration and concern. And I think it's because of the way that I had, I had expressed things in talking about rights renunciation uh, with cruciformity. We give up our rights. We don't, we, we give up any kind of um, access to rights assertion. We don't assert our rights and demand and insist on our rights. Rather, we give them up and we give them up gladly, knowing that when we do, we enjoy uh, the outpouring of resurrection power. So, Marin was saying what's frustrating is that if she puts herself in a place where she's advocating for other people who have disabilities of one sort or another, if she becomes an advocate, uh, which she is, very um, you know, passionate writer and um, a powerful advocate and ally for the oppressed, um, if she ad uh, if she advocates for somebody else who has disabilities, is she not advocating for herself? And does that in some way run afoul of um, you know, this cruciform ideal? 
um, I thought that was great. It was a great challenge and a great question. And her, you know, she reminded me once again of the need to be in constant conversation about cruciformity and about identity as disciples. Um, and I've been reminded of this. I've, you know, friends of mine who are women in ministry, uh, especially Betsy and Jennifer, have uh, taught me a lot about this. I've talked about cruciformity and rights renunciation a lot because the cross confronts my inherited American ideology, and I can see how it does so for me. Because the way that it does so for me is largely, uh, it maps really well to how the cross reconfigured Paul's imagination and Paul's uh, set of practices. Because he also was, like me, a privileged male. Um, and he had status, and he was pursuing status and power and prestige and cultural influence and all the rest. So my story maps really well onto uh, Paul's story. Paul's story maps really well onto me because I'm somebody that American culture has centered. The, the challenge is the American story has decentered other people, women, black and brown people, indigenous people, disabled people, LGBTQ plus people. And so um, what I what I want to say is that the cross, the word of the cross is, is going to be a different word to um, people who are in other social locations than I am. And um, I think what I would like to do, and I, I mentioned this at the end of um, Power and Weakness, um, because I'd had these conversations with Jennifer and Betsy, and they had challenged me um, with regard to how I had expressed the way that cruciformity shapes ministry. And so I wrote uh, an epilogue talking about how I would love to hear, I don't think it's appropriate for me to, um, to talk about how the cross shapes Christian discipleship for women how the cross shapes Christian, Christian discipleship for disabled people, uh, for black and brown people, and for indigenous folks, and for um, otherwise gendered people. I, I'm not in their place. When it comes to those discussions, I'm, I'm in the place of a listener and of a student, and I want to listen, and I want to learn, and I want to understand. Because um, I'm all too aware, um, very aware, of how it is that the Bible has been learned, uh, has been used to um, to endorse the oppression of subjugated people. The Bible was used to subjugate African slaves, um, uh, people who were brought from Africa and enslaved by white European settlers, using Scripture to endorse that project. And um, I'm not sure that I'm in a place where I can. Uh, do the creative work to explore that. I think that people in their social locations need to work hard uh, to do the good work, the life-giving work of hearing how the word of the cross addresses them in a manner that offers them life and offers them liberation and um, how the call, the, um, the paradoxical call to sort of give up everything and lose everything in order to gain everything, how that sounds to them in their social location. I can't determine that. Um, I need to be a listener in that. However, um, finally, uh, the one thing that I 
was reminded of in just reflecting on this, I was thinking about um, the dynamics that are going on in Mark, where there's this constant ongoing reality in the community that the cross creates. And that, that dynamic is one where the marginalized are always being centered. The marginalized are always being centered. And you see this in Mark uh, 3, 1 to 6, which is a little narrative that takes place in a synagogue in Capernaum. And Jesus walks in and there's a man with a withered hand who is there. Um, And Jesus tells him, you know, come up here. And the way that, basically, the way that this sounds is, you know, come here to the center. And the way that Mark wants us to envision that narrative is that this man is at the edge. Like he's, he's, he's against the wall. He's at the back. He's been pushed to the edge because there's something, you know, wrong with him. There's something sinful about him, something deficient about him. Something is wrong with this man, according to the corrupted uh, social values and, you know, of that first century culture. And Jesus tells him, you know, come up here, come to the center. And then uh, he heals the man, and that becomes it's the climactic, it's a climax of um, a growing set of controversy stories that begins uh, at the beginning of chapter two. But Jesus heals the man, and that becomes the cause of the Pharisees and the scribes joining with the Herodians to plot to kill Jesus. But just to say that 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 is the dynamic that Jesus creates. And that is the dynamic that the cross creates. People who are at the margins are being drawn to the center. And this is the very same thing that you see in Mark chapter 9, where the disciples are driving away the children because they are, the, they are, you know, they are another social other. They don't matter. Uh, they're nobodies. They have no social capital. And Jesus takes a child, sets the child in the midst of them, so he, he takes the child, puts the child right at the center, and then puts his arms around the child. So again, there's this dynamic happening in the community that the cross creates of drawing the marginalized to the center, drawing the, the, um, the oppressed to the center. The excluded is brought into the midst and Jesus also identifies. He puts his arms around the child. And then he tells um, the disciples that whenever they welcome this social other, this social nobody, they're welcoming Jesus and God who sent Jesus. Which is to say, um, if you've got a quote-unquote Christian community when where the marginalized are at the margins, you have a community where Jesus is absent. I mean, that is, that's, that's the reality according to the gospel of Mark. And um, one of the things that Marin was saying is that, you know, she's had these experiences and she, you know, knows that this is the reality in many, many churches where disabled people are not welcome or um, families with uh, a child in them who has a disability are either, you know, the message is sent that they're unwelcome there, or they're marginalized, or they're not attended to and treated with dignity and care and hospitality and embrace, um, 
or uh, disabled folks in our churches are shunted off into quote unquote disabled ministries where they are not integrated into the body, where they're not seen as an essential part of the social unit, where they are not told uh, in word and in practice, this place is not the same if you are not here. And that's a tragedy. That is, that is a complete and total loss. The reality is that the church is the body of people um, that embrace the outsider, that embrace the marginalized, because that's a it's an essential part of our own identity. We are all the other. All of us are the other. And Jesus is the only insider, and he welcomes all of us. And we are all now brother and sister. We are siblings. That's our identity. And as I said, we go to work uh, to discern the forces that elevate some of us or center some of us and um, subjugate others and uh, marginalize others. I think also of, um, this is something I talk about in Power and Weakness, um, the way that Paul uses sinner talk or ungodly talk in his letters is to get at this very same dynamic where, um, you know, in a Jewish context, sinner does not necessarily mean person who's guilty before God, but, you know, that person is distant from God. You know, they're, they're the outsider. And that becomes a main part of Paul's uh, construction of his identity after his encounter with Christ on the Damascus Road. He is happy to call himself sinner. He is an outsider. And he's a, he's a person who is always at the same time outsider and welcomed. It's a way of getting at our identity as people who are loved and welcomed and embraced by God. Uh, we are adopted as children because before we were distant. And all these categories become for Paul a rich way of constructing uh, Christian identity or identity as disciples. So I say all of that about um, this dynamic of the kingdom of God and how it's resituating all of us uh, to say that I think it's important um, to be talking about that reality. So as somebody that uh, culture has centered and as somebody that culture has um, exalted, the way that cruciformity affects me, the way that I am brought into the kingdom of God, the way that I'm claimed by the cross is going to involve uh, becoming last. That is to say, sort of moving from first toward being last um, in order to reach that place where I'm joined together with fellow inhabitants of the kingdom of God. And, but that is not going to be the same for everybody. So for people with disabilities, um, for, for the many other groups of people that, uh, you know, culture marginalizes and that culture others, they will not follow a similar uh, trajectory to me. And I think it's important that we all learn to talk about that in gospel-oriented ways, in kingdom of God speech patterns and with kingdom of God grammar. And I think that a big part of that is that we we actually don't insist on our rights because we're not you know given rights. We are we are image bearers. We are not people with rights. That's a way of thinking about the human from the perspective of the Enlightenment. Uh, we need to think about being human from the perspective of being image of God. 
and um, it's not that we have rights, but uh, you know we all want to see God's justice being done among us. And if that means that the oppressed and mistreated are treated with God's justice, uh, embodied by the people of God, treating them with God's justice and insisting that that be the case, uh, then we all have the right to talk about it. Or, uh, I just use right to talk. We all have the place to talk about that. It's it's all of our responsibility and our glad delight to actually talk about that. What's the deal? Why is this person not being uh, treated well according to God's justice? So I do think that people that are part of uh, historically oppressed and marginalized groups, um, I think it's important for them to speak up and to do so on the grounds of kingdom realities of God's justice. And even more important uh, than that, I think it's um, I think it's the responsibility of people who are not uh, oppressed and marginalized and mistreated, excluded, to um, to become advocates and allies, and to insist on others being treated properly according to God's justice. I do believe that it's it's um, it's also uh, the church's responsibility to speak a word a prophetic word to the larger culture and to uh, stakeholders in power um, that, uh, you know, we, we, we just might end up using rights talk when we're talking to the larger culture um, and, and insist that people uh, be given their rights, um, you know, voting rights or the varieties of other sorts of rights. Uh, Marin was noting that uh, churches were vehemently opposed to, to the American uh, Americans with Disabilities Act, which is just absolutely insane. You could see the value system that is at work there, self-preservation, not wanting to have to spend money to uh, make accommodations. It's complete selfishness, wrapped up in selfishness without thinking about creative and wonderful opportunities to actually serve people and welcome people who have been historically mistreated. So anyway... I'll have more to say uh, to Marin in an email, but I, I do very much appreciate um, hearing from her as always and um, uh, for sparking my thoughts. Um, cruciformity is a complex phenomenon and uh, it's a life-giving one. And it's one that in order, in order for all of us to inhabit it well and joyfully, it's one that we uh, need to be talking about. Next week, I'm going to have a conversation with my friend Steve Watkins, and I'm looking forward to uh, hitting a load of fun topics with him. Uh, looking ahead beyond that, I'm looking forward to talking about a variety of things like suffering and God's sovereignty, topics about which uh, Christian people tend to think very badly about. Um, and so hopefully, uh, we'll bring some clarity to that. Uh, I've, as I said, did this episode standing in my kitchen looking out on an absolutely uh, gorgeous day. It's been bright. We're supposed to get some snow tonight. Uh, my goodness, it's a beautiful day. Don't let it get away. <laughs>